everyone, and welcome to this podcast about a particular type of blood clot, a DVT, or deep vein thrombosis. Now, some of you might have seen the title and thought, bad clots? Wait a moment, there are good clots? Well, yeah, the blood clotting or coagulation is an important process that actually prevents excessive bleeding when a blood vessel is injured or damaged. Platelets, a type of blood cell that we also call thrombocytes, and proteins in your plasma, so the yellowish liquid component of blood that hold the cells in suspension, work together to stop the bleeding by forming a clot over the injury. That's a fascinating area of biology that I actually address in more detail in other podcasts. In this one, what I want to look at are the bad kinds of clots. Deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, is the development of a blood clot in a major deep vein in the leg, the thigh, the pelvis or the abdomen. Venous thrombosis may also occur in the upper extremities or in more unusual sites such as the portal, the mesenteric, ovarian and retinal veins, as well as the veins and the venous sinuses of the brain. Superficial vein thrombosis, so thrombosis affecting veins superficial to the musculature, can also commonly occur. DVTs may be asymptomatic, so someone may present with no symptoms at all. However, there may be asymmetrical leg swelling, unilateral leg pain, dilation or distension of the superficial veins, and red or discoloured skin. If part of the clot breaks off, it can create significant complications, namely a pulmonary embolism. Venous thromboembolism is the broad term that includes DVT and a pulmonary embolism together. Pulmonary embolism, quite simply, is a blockage in one of the pulmonary arteries in your lungs. In most cases, pulmonary embolism is caused by blood clots that travel to the lungs from the deep veins in the legs, or rarely from veins in other parts of the body. Because the clots block blood flow to the lungs, pulmonary embolism can be life-threatening. Symptoms can vary greatly depending on how much of your lung is involved, the size of the clots, and whether you have any underlying lung or heart disease. Just to quickly highlight some of the common signs and symptoms you'd be looking out for, so things like shortness of breath, and that typically appears quite suddenly and always gets worse with exertion. Chest pain. In fact, you may feel like you're actually having a heart attack. The pain's often described as being quite sharp, and it's felt when you breathe in deeply, often stopping you from being able to take a deeper breath. It can also be felt when you cough or bend or stoop. And then finally, an actual cough that may produce bloody or blood-streaked sputum. The salient point here is that DVT and all of its associated complications pose significant risks to health. Let's just for a moment discuss the normal clotting process. So platelets break down and release thromboplastin. Prothrombin is synthesised in the liver using vitamin K. Now, in the presence of calcium ions that act as what we call cofactors, thromboplastin converts the prothrombin into something called thrombin. Thrombin then converts soluble fibrinogen into insoluble fibrin. And it's that that forms a mesh that traps the platelets and red blood cells together to form a clot. 
It sounds quite complicated, but ultimately what we're getting is just a big cascade of events allowing us to turn a soluble chemical into an insoluble one, one that's going to allow us to heal, to clot. So who is actually at risk of developing these bad clots? Well, those most at risk include uh, people with varicose veins. So these are the superficial veins that have become enlarged or twisted. Typically, they occur just under the skin in the legs. Obesity is a risk factor for DVT, particularly those with a body mass index of 30 or higher. Genetic imbalance of the coagulation factors can also lead to bad clots. Coagulation or clotting factors, as they're called, are just simply any of a number of substances in the blood plasma which are involved in the clotting process, such as clotting factor number 9, along with the proteins that I've already mentioned. Those subject to prolonged immobility, so for example on long-haul air travel, or significant periods of bed rest, and anyone over the age of 40, all considered to be at-risk groups as such. Carrying a baby puts more pressure on the veins in your legs and pelvis. And what's more, a clot can happen up to six weeks after you've actually given birth. Smoking. It makes the blood cells stickier than they would be. It also harms the lining of your blood vessels, making it easier for clots to form. Organ transplants and implanted devices such as central venous catheters and dialysis shunts may also result in injury to blood vessel walls and subsequent clots could form. Interestingly, birth control pills or hormone replacement therapy carries with it an increased risk of DVT, deep vein thrombosis. The oestrogen in these raises the blood's ability to clot, although it is important to mention that the progesterone-only pills don't have quite the same level of risk. Let's just talk in a bit more detail about air travel for a moment. Now, I'm sure anyone who has flown any great distance has had the, let's say, great pleasure of wearing those nice and overly tight flight socks for their journey. Well, if you didn't, if you've been anywhere and you didn't, you really ought to have done. Many studies have shown a clear link between long-haul air travel and the risk of de developing rather DVT. Suggested reasons include the long periods of immobility in cramped seating, the low cabin pressure and dehydration. Sitting for just one hour significantly reduces the volume of blood returning to the heart from the legs. Interestingly, it's thought between 85 and 100% of DVT cases have been found to occur in passengers sitting in non-aisle seats. The ability to get up and walk around really is that important. Airlines and health professionals have made several recommendations to long-haul or frequent flyers, so frequent stretching of the calf muscles, avoidance of constrictive clothing and footwear, the use of flight socks, or to give them the proper name, the compression stockings, that are ultimately designed to encourage the venous return of blood back to the heart. Well, essentially, it's the popliteal vein carrying blood from the knee and the thigh back up to the heart. Then there's the suggestion of using a single-dose, low-molecular-weight heparin prior to departure. And I'll talk about heparin in just a moment in a bit more detail. Standing, stretching and leg exercises, so things like ankle rotation or knee flexion. The use of devices that passengers can flex their feet against and just generally drinking lots of water and avoiding alcohol. 
Heart failure is a condition in which the heart is damaged or weakened. When the heart can't pump enough blood to meet the body's needs, the blood flow slows, which can cause clots to form. And equally, uh, atrial fibrillation, the most common type of arrhythmia or irregular heartbeat, can cause blood to pool in the upper chambers of the heart. Now, whilst the clots I'm talking about here aren't specifically occurring in the deep veins, they are suggestive, however, of an increased risk or predisposition, if you like, to someone who may generally have clots forming. Diagnosing DVT requires a multi-step approach. First, you'd have an ultrasound examination. Here, all heart, here, apologies, here high-frequency sound waves provide reflections that can be converted into images, indicating how blood is flowing through a vein. One would then be given impedance plethysmography, or IPG as it's known. This is when basically electrodes are used to measure pressure and volume changes in blood flow. High-risk individuals or those diagnosed with DVT are given anticoagulants such as heparin or warfarin. Heparin is injected and it works almost immediately. Warfarin is then taken orally and once the blood warfarin levels have stabilised at the desired level, heparin use is then stopped. Warfarin takes about three days to work and it acts by inhibiting the production of prothrombin. So without prothrombin, no thrombin is formed. In turn, that prevents the formation of fibrin from fibrinogen. So ultimately, a clot is unable to form. For warfarin to work effectively, patients must try to maintain their levels of vitamin K as a consistent, uh, or at a consistent level as, as really possible. If vitamin K levels suddenly increase, then the production of prothrombin in the liver will also increase. This obviously increases the chance of a clot forming. On the other hand, if vitamin K levels suddenly drop, then warfarin effectiveness may increase increasing the chances in turn of hemorrhage. The aim is not to increase or decrease the level of vitamin K in the diet, but to maintain a consistent level from week to week. So individuals taking warfarin need to know which foods are high or very high in vitamin K. These include things like green leafy vegetables, so spinach, parsley, lettuce, sprouts, even broccoli, mint leaves, green tea, grapefruit, cranberries, blueberries, kiwi fruit, cashew nuts, and garlic. In fact, garlic has long been associated with health benefits, from curing a cold to lowering blood pressure and cholesterol levels. Garlic contains vitamin C and B6, manganese, and also selenium, but it's a chemical called allicin, a type of antioxidant, which is thought to be responsible for its positive effects. There isn't a great deal of hard evidence to support the health benefits, but some research has shown reductions in blood pressure as a result of garlic consumption. In this particular podcast, I've referred to a number of pathologies. And if that's an area that you're interested in, I mean, I've recorded a number of podcasts on specifically forensic pathology, but more so um, ones about diabetes and insulin and insulin's discovery. I've done a number of podcasts about the heart specifically and ECGs and the different kind of conditions such as arrhythmias that we can pick up from an electrocardiogram. So if you are interested, do look at the other podcasts uh, on the Kytos Biology channel. 
and you might find that they really do help to complement this one. So all that's left for me to say really is a big thank you to everyone listening and a thank you to our sponsors Curriculum Press for providing uh, content for this particular podcast. Thank you again. <laughs>